Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hiya, friends. It's me, Anna, from the dirt, inviting you to a live show. We're doing our annual Anthro Day live show in conjunction with the American Anthropological Association. This year, we're doing You Are What You Eat. We're going to be talking about food, my favorite stuff. It's going to be at 7 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, February 17th. So we hope you can come and join us. We will be sitting down with a smorgasbord of examples from the archaeological record that teach us about food and cooking in the past. So we are going to talk about evidence for the oldest recipe, discuss the evolution of spiciness, rummage around in the pots and pans of ancient history, and chew on the idea that cooking changed human faces. It's going to be a whole bunch of fun. You're going to get to see the goofs and jokes and silliness and possibly the pets that don't make it into the main feed recording. But don't worry, if you can't make the show, we'll miss you. But we will be releasing audio of that live show for the main feed a little later on in the year. So come to our live show. You can go register. It is totally free. All you have to do is go and click the link at thedirtpod.com slash anthroday2022. That's thedirtpod.com slash anthroday2022. Come listen to us talk about our favorite things so we can see our favorite people, you. The listeners. One more time, that is Thursday, February 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern. And to register for free, go to thedirtpod.com slash anthroday2022. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. Allow me to introduce today's guest. Samuel J. Redman is a historian who studies the history of museums, anthropology, and archaeology. He's the author of three books, Bone Rooms, Prophets and Ghosts, and the upcoming The Museum. Colon, a short history of crisis and resilience. He's also an associate professor at UMass Amherst. So thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, thank you so, so much for having me. Yeah. So today we are focusing on your book, Prophets and Ghosts, and the subject of salvage anthropology. So we're also very excited. This is a fun new thing we're doing to announce a sweet, sweet giveaway in partnership with Harvard University Press. And so Listeners, beginning the day this episode premieres, which is a Monday, you can head over to at the dirt pod on Instagram and at dirt podcast on Twitter for instructions on how to win one of three copies of Prophets and Ghosts, if you like what you hear today. So it's super simple, open to anyone with a mailing address anywhere, and we aren't collecting any kind of information of any sort about you. And so we will contact the winners via Twitter or Instagram. But first thing first, we have an interview to do. So, Sam, how did you come to be a historian of anthropology and what has your trajectory looked like, your education, your your path? Wow. Well, I, I know a lot of historians probably say this. I've always been interested in history. My dad was a history major. Uh, that that bug caught me early. I didn't know what I wanted to major in going to college. When I went to my first year in college, I, of course, dutifully signed up for a history class. And I, I thought... Archaeology also sounded kind of cool. My small liberal arts college did not have an archaeology class, but they had an anthropology class. And uh, sort of uniquely, I came to learn later, my intro to anthropology class was taught by Dr. Julie Peltier, who's a native uh, uh, scholar, a native anthropologist. So right from the jump, when I was 17, 18 years old, I got a a taste of history of anthropology and uh, uh, learned it from, I think, a, a different perspective, from a perspective that uh, that brought forward some of the native voices in the story. My history professor learned that I was interested in history of archaeology, handed me a book uh, by Bruce Kuklik, an intellectual history of archaeology called Puritans in Babylon. And man, I was hooked. And so from there, 
do you, did you just go like straight through? You're like, I got it and nailed it, figured it out. No, I, I really wanted to, great question. I wanted to work in a museum and uh, started uh, doing internships, working in museums. And to me, what became one of the most exciting tasks uh, that any intern could be given was to try to find collections or objects in these vast collections. I worked at the Field Museum of Natural History in in, uh, Chicago, which has millions and millions of archeological objects and ethnographic objects. Mm -hmm. And what happens, understandably, is that sometimes things get put on the wrong shelf or they get loaned to a museum and then maybe don't come back. Uh, Things, unfortunately, do get misplaced. But the task of looking through the archives and um, trying to figure out where where things uh, uh, left and and what the history behind these objects were and, and, and sometimes the seedy history of how they arrived at museums. I was just endlessly fascinated by that. It kept me up at night. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I wanted to go to work every day. And um, one thing really led to another in terms of writing about that as a topic, thinking about it, and um, eventually applying to graduate school to become a historian and and really focusing on that as as my study. A thing that that puzzled me, you know, was uh, looking around for texts like this. There is there's um, a literature, you might say, on the history of anthropology and the stories and characters and, of course, the context in which all of this happens is so incredibly fascinating. And what we'll get to eventually is this topic of salvage anthropology. But it occurred to me when I was reading about the history of anthropology that People were talking about this as a phenomenon, but there was no book written on this phenomenon of salvage anthropology. So sometimes it's just learning about things and topics that you're interested in and asking more questions. And of course, that can go to any number of different places within this huge field of anthropology. Yeah, well, let's get to that eventually now. Um, so <laughs> the eventual is now. <laughs> so for the for the benefit of, of our listeners, um, could you and please, me and, and Anna, uh, <laughs> could you please define salvage anthropology? Um, what is it and um, what what led you to be the person to write a book about it? Because you said like they had. Sure. Done, so. Sure. So in the 19th century and before the a really prevalent idea existed in Europe and the United States, the idea that we now call the vanishing Indian myth. And it was this concept that native people, indigenous people in across North America, what we now call Native Americans or First Nations peoples, but also elsewhere around the world, indigenous people all around the world were were thought to be doomed to vanish. And much like if often when I use the word salvage anthropology to people who have not heard of this concept or thought about this as an idea, the, the word salvage often connotates a shipwreck, you know, trying to uh, salvage a, a shipwreck. Well, in this case, if you go with that analogy, I guess the, the perceived uh, uh, ship going down was thought to be cultures and the uniqueness of different cultures. So anthropologists. No. Oh, so go ahead. thought by whom? Thought by white people in particular, thought by Europeans and Americans were largely convinced of this. So individuals that people have heard of, like Thomas Jefferson, de Tocqueville, uh, many major thinkers would write about how this was a a reality that was about to to occur. And certainly, if you look at other sorts of data and information, uh, census data, when it starts to emerge and the realities of genocide, and colonialism, uh, destruction, and disease, Um, there was some reason to think that these cultures were indeed threatened in uh, material sorts of ways. So the salvage component of it becomes anthropologists who become obsessed with rapid collecting uh, and documenting for preservation purposes. So yes, they are interpreting these materials and and publishing them and and trying to get them out. But by and large, the focus becomes rapid collection of materials. And this includes everything. It includes the most sacred materials that one can think of from tribes and, and communities across the world. And also the most profane things, the most everyday mundane things like our utensils. And maybe in some cultures, utensils could be a sacred object, but 
by and large, for most people, they don't feel the, quite the same attachment to those as they might religious or spiritual objects. But for uh, salvage anthropologists, they wanted to collect songs and stories, language information, material objects, as well as human bodies. So this book is really about that phenomenon and, and how it played out in North America in the 19th and 20th century, especially, and what legacy we're left with today as a result of that. And so the people who are doing the collecting in this early sort of stage of salvage anthropology, in Prophets and Ghosts, you describe the first work done, and by default, it was by amateurs because the profession didn't exist. And so what did research look like for them? And did their approaches inform kind of the formalized training that came later? Or was that replaced by by new methods? So basically, where did any existing formal or codified practices for salvage anthropology come from? I love this question because it really speaks to what I was trying to figure out. Um, as your question suggests, uh, there was a transition, of course, at some point from sort of an amateur anthropology to a more formalized version of it that was centered, especially in, in universities and, and places of higher education for these more formal uh, 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 higher education in, in this field. Um, so, uh, you know, this sounds kind of silly when you think about it, but at, at, at where do books begin? I mean, I was sitting at some point in the library thinking about, oh, well, isn't it interesting that there isn't a, like when I look up salvage anthropology in the database, that some book just doesn't pop up in relation to this. Well, what really is salvage anthropology? Like, let's look up all of the various definitions of this thing and see if we can sort of work it out. Uh, and one of the things that I was became interested in is it was almost exclusively associated with a famous figure in anthropology named Franz Boas, who comes, it was really active a, a, a bit later in the 19th century and into the 20th century. Um, but I became curious, well, what about earlier than that? Like, what if we go back and look at figures in anthropology earlier than that? And sometimes in American intellectual history, we look at some books that are written by a figure named Lewis Henry Morgan, who is an, an attorney who liked to dress up and, in the words of one scholar, play Indian. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, talk about extreme 19th century cultural appropriation. But his sort of this interest that he has becomes more and more serious. And he starts to not only read what he can about Native cultures, he starts to actually try to meet Native people. And he befriends a teenager named Eli S. Parker, who's a fascinating figure in American history. He's Seneca. And he introduces uh, Morgan to people within the Seneca world and, and uh, within the broader Iroquois world. And uh, Morgan then writes what's broadly considered to be the first, quote unquote, American ethnography, the first person to write this sort of rich cultural description about tribes. But what, when I went back and looked at his records, his actual um, writings and, and things of that nature, three things stood out to me. One is that it's the sort of armchair anthropology that we think of in many, a lot of Morgan's work is that he writes surveys and sends them out to people who write back, you know, I think this is what's going on in this culture. And there's a lot of second and third hand information that he's incorporating into a lot of his work. Um, he's also really relying on uh, Eli Parker and what we sometimes call informants, but native people who are offering to him sometimes freely, sometimes in exchange for uh, uh, other things. Um, Morgan is an attorney, right? So he often advocates for native people in terms of land claims uh, as, as an attorney against major railroad companies that are intruding. So he's a complicated guy, but the last thing that stood out to me that no one really talks about is that he writes letters appealing to the Wisconsin Historical Society and other new museums using exactly the language that we attribute with Franz Boas later on, saying, please collect this unique material, preserve it for future generations because it is threatened for these reasons. So if we're thinking about that definition of salvage anthropology, it doesn't actually begin 30, 40 years later. It begins with figures like Lewis Henry Morgan and Eli S. Parker, who are working and collaborating together on some level, even though Morgan receives a great deal more of the credit. 
uh, for attempting to preserve these materials. And he does indeed collect materials for the New York Historical Society, much of which is later destroyed in a fire, which is also probably why we don't fully interpret his story in quite that way. Would later anthropologists, as they began to call themselves that, were they reading Morgan's work and being like, this is how you do it? Like, so, like what, like who, yeah. cause you know, you think about like, oh, is there a textbook of like, this is how you do it. And so when you are creating, you know, a very simplistic way to look at it, it's like to, to say that, you know, anthropology was sort of invented because it was, it was inherited from lots of different disciplines. And, and so what, were they looking to that work? Is that why we see Morgan's sort of sentiments coming through and what Boaz was saying, even though he wasn't from the U.S.? Like, wh- who who wrote the textbook here? Yeah, awesome question. So um, a lot of the first programs are coming up and emerging in Germany. Like, if you want to get a, a PhD, you have to go abroad in this field. But you're right, there's a limited number of texts that are available. And much like how Morgan was in that library poking or in the bookstore where he bumps into Eli Parker, he's looking for those sort of limited number of texts that can speak to the things that he's obsessed with, um, including native languages and native cultures and things like that. So figures like Franz Boas, even though he does emerge later, he, he studies uh, physics and geography and, like you say, these other fields but figures in the Bureau of American Ethnology, this government group that starts to collect materials, base much of their work on these early anthropologists. So yes, they'd read Morgan. Um, Some of them are friends with Morgan. So um, uh, uh, John Wesley Powell, who is the first director, uh, corresponds with Morgan and then he visits him in in his home and and they, they spend time together. I'm really fascinated by that. I mean, on an individual level where intellectual history meets the relationships that these people have, how they're talking about that uh, in public texts, but also in their private letters, uh, personal disagreements that they have, personality conflicts, arguments. Um, Some of them, of course, become lovers and fall out. And and the the story of anthropology in that way is really compelling from a a personal interest side. But more importantly, these figures are writing these really important texts that are hugely consequential for Native people and how we think about cultures more, more generally. So I'm really interested in all aspects of that. But yes, to answer your question, Morgan's major texts and his lingering personal influence through letter writing really influences what the Smithsonian would become and what later anthropologists would become and debate. So yeah, it's it's really central in terms of uh, standing that up for all of the many problems that Lewis Henry Morgan presents. Okay, well, we are going to take a very quick ad break and then we'll be right back with more questions. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. So we're back and I have more questions. Uh, so you mentioned the Bureau of American Ethnology and the Smithsonian um, before on the other side of the break. Um, and so 
something that I kept thinking about while reading uh, your book, but also I think about more generally uh, sort of the, the nature of like funding for research. So a lot of the work, especially the early work in, in salvage anthropology and you know, anthropology more broadly. Um, it was supported by the Bureau of American Ethnology, as you said, and the Smithsonian Institution. And both of those are U.S. government entities. Like they are part of the federal government. Um, so in your research, to what extent did you notice that the, the anthropologists who were funded by them or some of them worked on contracts, some of them just sort of worked on spec um, and, <laughs> and sort of like that they were working alongside with and trying to appeal to the BAE and Smithsonian, um, were they aware of the tension between on the one hand, you've got this need, this perceived need to capture information about people that they thought were on the way out that, you know, you catch it, like you got to like gather this information now because you'll never have another chance. Um, but then on the other hand, um, you've got this sort of these material forces, this, this, like they, you know, they are either underwritten or explicitly instructed by these, these government organizations, which are in fact, like an arm of the very apparatus that created the existential <laughs> threat um, that indigenous groups faced. Yeah. Did they step back and take a look at themselves and go, Oh yeah. Were they like, all, this, all, this is horrible, but I've got to eat. Um, was, so, where, was there any kind of drive like that or was it all very like idealistic? Yeah. I want to help. What a yeah. super important question or, or sort of set of questions. And absolutely. It is something that I too could not stop thinking about the, the whole way through because I kept trying to sort of think or balance the degree to which, yes, you are absolutely right for, you know, and a great example of that is, is the one that you mentioned. And one of the most direct examples is an anthropologist named Alice Cunningham Fletcher, who uh, writes these remarkable detailed letters from quote unquote, the field from across the American West, but especially a lot of work with the Omaha and, and in what are, you know, the, the Great Plains. Um, and, and she, you know, it, it's clear when you're reading her letters that she, in some sense, has a quote unquote benevolent, paternalistic uh, view towards Native people and people that become her friends. I mean, there's the story where she becomes bedridden with arthritis and friends in the Native surrounding Native community come and sing to her every day. Um, so it seems that, you know, on some level, they're developing relationships. On well, the and, other and to hand, clarify there. Like, um, they, they come and sing to her because she is an ethnomusicologist, right? Like she, right, she's the right. one who that was her work and that's how she established those relationships. A hundred percent. So you become seriously okay. interested in ethnomusicology. You're totally right. And collecting these. And one, honestly, one of the first people that's really interested in this, like if you think about what comes before this, the vast majority of people would have dismissed native music as being unimportant, unintelligible, uh, quote unquote, savage, lots of dismissive views towards that, which, which Fletcher responds to and in many ways elevates the study of that. But like scholars like Phil Deloria have pointed out, they also by and large, like they help enter these materials into the national uh, grist, the sort of heritage grist. So it, it's sort of about claiming these materials as much as anything else. And Fletcher also becomes a, a, a point person for the, the uh, implementation of the Dawes Act, which is one of the most un horribly consequential uh, pieces of legislation for Native people resulting in the vast loss of lands and, and uh, uh, breakup of, of uh, community lands into individual plots of lands, often on terrible farming conditions. It's a huge disaster. Um, so it's one of these things where, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the path, the road sometimes to horrible consequences can be laid with good intentions. Um, on the other hand, there are also figures like James Mooney, who is another fascinating, complicated figure who I think is underdrawn in terms of the history of anthropology, in part because he's at the Smithsonian as a curator and uh, works with the BAE for many years. He doesn't have a huge number of students, but he learns about things like peyote 
and the ghost dance. And he writes about these uh, and the hysteria surrounding these things and uh, pushes back before Congress. Um, and for, honestly, a lot of his writings and, and points of view get him into hot water with politicians who see things very differently and want him banned from Indian country, including uh, 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 Henry Pratt, the head of the Carlisle Indian School, uh, the, this Native American boarding school gets into a public battle with uh, with Mooney over um, uh, the future of Native Americans and, and the freedoms associated with Native spirituality. So it's a complicated question because a lot of in ways this is connected to the same uh, uh, mechanisms that are harming Native people. And yet we're left with this legacy of materials uh, that in some respects are really meaningful and important for in many respects, I should say, for native, native people today. So, um, you know, how did these materials get there? Sometimes through uh, abuses, through this uh, sort of macro systems that are allowing for this to happen. Uh, and on the other hand, you're left sometimes with the only material culture, maybe that your grandparents or great grandparents uh, let, have on this earth. So it's it's uh, intensely complicating and uh, complicated and fascinating in that way. If any examples come to mind of you know in in letters or diaries of um, you know you mentioned you mentioned Mooney getting in sort of uh, protracted tiffs with with folks interlocutors, but. Are there any examples of, of a time that they said, like, I don't like I wish there were someone else who were funding this. I wish there were someone else supporting this. Maybe it just was impossible, given the circumstances, to sort of move the, like the Dawes Act and similar things to move towards privatization and away from sort of communal um, ownership or sort of and, and like efforts to dissolve community. Uh, like where there there can you think of anyone who. We're like, not only am I looking to my informants who are indigenous people, but I want, but I want to work as a peer, as a mm. sort of an equal, or I, I would prefer that this stay in their ownership or their custody, or was, is that just a foregone conclusion given the, like the fact that this was an, a world in which salvage anthropology believed it needed to exist, precluded a world in which there could be indigenous custody over their own objects? I think largely the latter, largely that very end uh, is the unfortunate reality. There's an amazing book about this too by native uh, scholar, uh, Margaret Bruchak, who writes a book called Savage Kin, who's thinking about the role of quote unquote informants and native uh, influence in these um, ultimately texts that are largely the, the, the focus of uh, her study in the history of anthropology. But of course, Margaret also writes about the history of collecting and, and how this has been influenced in, in that way. And sometimes you can see, you know, in the record, uh, uh, figures like Boaz who develop deeper relationships with certain Native uh, individuals, and he invites them to come to New York and look at exhibitions that are in progress uh, and, and comment, but um, it's never on the level of full parody, right? Like it's okay. it's there's always that hierarchical sort of uh, uh, voice that's that's happening. And so I became really interested in the moments where there is some level of collaboration. But by and large, the story of salvage anthropology is largely this like paternalistic movement that museums are the proper place to hold these materials for future generations. And sort of this Western idea, idea of how this should be done is enacted. It's interesting that you mentioned Boaz there as somebody who would invite people to, you know, native colleagues to come and, and see that because it sounds like there, there are internal contradictions because I, I think that um, some of our listeners who may be less familiar with sort of um, Boaz in general may know him as one of the guys that was um intimately involved in the tragedy of uh, Minnick and, mm -hmm. and his family and including his father's death, well, be, being brought under duress and, and subsequent like medical neglect uh, that comes along with, with that. Um, and, and the, the way in which his, um, he was not given the customary funeral that, um, that Minnick believed that he would have, that he, he both should have and did receive um, to instead 
uh, keep his remains. In, installing him as yeah. an exhibit. And so yeah. to have, that's something that I, um, I can think of um, few more violent acts that an individual can take. I, I can't think of few things worse. And so it's very fascinating mm-hmm. to me that you, you mentioned Boaz as somebody who had, who did approach parody, sort of never reaching it, but approaching yeah. it. So I should, and I should clarify, that's a great comment and point that's also highlighted in, in the book because Boaz is, of course, this really complicated figure. One of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was to show that salvage anthropology is about more than this guy, Franz Boas, this German-American immigrant who, in many respects, changes the field and changes many of the social sciences by advocating for cultural relativism, this idea that would have been really controversial in the 19th century when it was proposed that maybe people are developing their own unique solutions to problems as opposed to being better or worse or like more advanced or less advanced. So yes, this is a radical idea and we need to give credit uh, to this hugely consequential uh, uh, moment and influence that, that it has. And his advocacy for immigrants in some ways and uh, being an, an, an anti-Nazi uh, uh, you know, voice, an prominent anti-Nazi voice, he, you know, deserves credit for a lot of those things. On the other hand, and this is a big important point, right, is that he trafficked in human remains uh, by selling them, as I write about in Bone Rooms. He um, uh, had these horrible abuses with the, the Inuit who were brought by Commander Perry, as you said, kidnapped, uh, abducted, really, um, and so to, how do you reckon those things? How do you, how do you sit with those contradictions? Um, to me, I find that really compelling and interesting. I find it like humanizing about these, these figures and it, it makes me want to learn more and, and understand more of, of the context. Uh, but I think if we see it as, as just one or the other, we're sort of missing some aspects of this, yeah. uh, but He's he's endlessly compelling. And I found his fingerprints to be all over everything, even writing a chapter about California. Here's Boaz in New York. And he's trying to raise money. He's trying to determine who gets money. He's trying to send people to collect things for New York. I mean, his fingerprints are, are all over the story in a lot of meaningful ways. Reckoning someone's legacy in the discipline with the darker aspects of um, themselves and even how they conducted themselves um, in the classroom with advisees. There's a little bit of that that comes through in your, your like your book is, is ra- I found to be rather equanimous with some aspects of, of individuals that I have very scathing views of, um, including Alfred Krover, um, who was taught how to exploit people by his advisor. Mm-hmm. And you, it comes through with that, that kind of uh, Boaz as kingmaker and, and sort of like puppet master. And, and so I think that that's something that for folks that, I mean, certainly folks who follow me on Twitter, but like folks that are on Twitter are involved in sort of academic Twitter. Like you see these things, you see these aspects of the realities of a scholar and the realities of scholarship extend far beyond their publications. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, um, a conversation like this and sort of a topic like this, um, a topic of scholarship that is, that was controversial and remained controversial. And is that people look for the silver linings or they look for the, like the, the, the upshot of the things that we can learn from both in positive and negative ways. I think that that's a really good and powerful entry point into discussing other aspects of um, abuses. Yeah, well, um, a, a brief foray into maybe something a little more positive. So along with this sort of chronicle of the history of anthropology as sort of a white European-centric discipline, you do throughout the book highlight the ways in which indigenous individuals at this time, in individuals and communities, were not passive, were not simply the objects of collection or the objects of study, and found ways in which they exercised agency within salvage anthropology. So are there examples of this that particularly stand out to you? Yes. Um, one, you know, I, I really, again, trying to think about what is salvage anthropology uh, and, and how do we see it out in the world? One of the things that I really became compelled by and was searching for 
were episodes or moments in time or individuals. Of course, we've talked about how some of these individuals are really compelling, um, but also objects and some ways that we or myself, I'll just say that I generally thought of objects as objects. Um, but that was my sort of Western, you know, the, the way in which I have been acculturated and, and uh, sort of learning to, to question that through this project, right? That, uh, for example, the, the Omaha have uh, in, in their spiritual tradition, a, a sacred pole, a cedar uh, a pole that is uh, that has some uh, markings on it. It's uh, 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 protected by an elder in a special tent that they move as they would move around seasonally. Um, and at, at some point it was considered threatened because the uh, eldest individual who knew how to care for the pole had had passed away. And the tribe is just trying to decide collectively what to do with it. Um, and I found a series of um, uh, uh, signed, uh, dated, uh, notarized depositions from 1900, where tribal elders were giving statements and their own personal rationale for why these materials should go to Harvard University, to the Peabody Museum, to be with other materials that had been deposited there. Uh, now, these were, are some materials that were repatriated uh, 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 later in the 80s and 90s, even some of them even before official NAGPRA, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act laws are enacted. Um, but that to me was really surprising as someone who was thinking about the dark corners of this and in terms of thinking about the exploitative um, uh, uh, often cultural theft that we're talking and thinking about to see these depositions where people are, you know, saying they want materials to go into uh, a specific museum stood out to me as, as unusual and as a deliberate choice. Now we can think about the cultural pressures and the stresses and the, the, the motivations for that, that, uh, rationale in that moment. But to me, I, I, I thought about, well, what if we take this seriously as a phenomenon and, and think about that? How can we, you know, think about the ways in which, uh, as Joe Horsecapture, the curator, uh, uh, put it, he says he feels like uh, grateful to be in the amidst the legacy that the ancestors have left for us. And so that to me, it sort of seemed like it can, in connection with that statement, like here's a very deliberate act that the ancestors have taken in order to ensure the preservation of these materials. So we need to think, I think, more you know, in more in a more sophisticated way about how some of these played out. Now, we can't overdraw that. Right. Like this isn't it's not as though all of these materials ended up there collaboratively. But it's not as though they represent just a simple one-to-one -one theft either. There's um, yeah. lots of influences that could potentially sort of play into this. So throughout the book, I couldn't help but find that um, for for many of the the anthropologists that you that you profiled or whose work you you outline. Um, lots of them have very positive attitudes, like very positive attitudes towards indigenous people that aren't necessarily um, paternalistic, but they are very fetishizing. Um, and so I, and so that's something that hit me really early on with um, the, the guy who wanted to know about indigenous populations. And so he married one. Mm -hmm. And so he had his, he had his uh. wife and his in-laws yeah. And, and so that's something that, um, I remember learning as something that you shouldn't do when you're an anthropologist is like marry one of your interlocutors. So like when you're doing an ethnographic study, right. um, but shouldn't be married to your job. Right. So, so this <laughs> um, is and so, so this, beginning with that and then moving on from there, I found that these, um, these fetishizing relationships continued. Now they weren't all necessarily um, something like romantic or, or like physical relationships or anything that has like other sorts of um, implications, but they were like, and I don't know, like a lot of them didn't sit well with me, um, but, and there certainly was, and you've spoken to this already in this conversation, this persistent theme of white audiences listening to white narrators, everything from like getting a lot of reports from, um, the agents who my understanding is that they are sort of federal employees. I don't know if they're military or just sort of bureaucratic employees who are assigned to various sort of like circumscribed like indigenous 
population. So I don't know if these are reservations necessarily, or they're just sort of like out there, but they were the ones who were being interviewed and they're like, I don't know. (laughs) Like I got, I think I got assigned here. And, um, and I just, I just could not get past the fact that this was information like filtered through a white lens for a white audience, because it wasn't like somebody was like, I want to learn about my own culture or like, I want to learn about, um, you know, I'm, I'm in this community, but I want to learn about the Omaha. I'm going to pick this up. Like it, it was just sort of a white audience for white research goals. Like the very Nate, the very idea of salvage anthropology was established by white people because the people who were vanishing were like, no, we're not. Um, so did indigenous, so all of that, <laughs> several minutes of me talking, um, did indigenous Welcome people, to podcasting. <laughs> did indigenous people fit themselves into this framework? Did, were they were they fit in it? Like at what like were they an afterthought in the entire enterprise? Henry Rowe Schoolcraft is that uh, anthropologist that you mentioned, or sort of early anthropologist that you mentioned, who's also an Indian agent who marries uh, Jane Schoolcraft and relies really heavily on uh, uh, her family and her sisters to learn about Ojibwe culture. Um, And Schoolcraft is important because he advises some of the formation of the Bureau of American Ethnology and the whole formation of the Smithsonian's anthropology program. So he's not just like some guy, right? Um, But yes, um, there are just endless examples of this that then need to be uh, parsed out and thought about. So... um, you know, paternalistically, uh, Frank Hamilton Cushing at one point says, I like trading materials with native people. And uh, I try to explain to them what a museum is and and they don't really seem to get it. So I'm just going to carry on doing what I'm doing. Um, And then there are other people who try to take advantage of this and uh, play, you know, it it really in some ways exploitative, but uh, sort of psychology in this like, um, you know, uh, the one anthropologist who says I'm collecting songs and some of the other elders have get from other tribes have given me songs. And that would sort of be a little bit of a, a potential affront to one's pride. So people would say, well, I know more than that jerk over there. So I'm going to give you many more songs. Um, so it, it, you know, there's just, as we've been talking about, there's a whole array of these relationships that develop in the, the history of salvage anthropology, um, that yes, as you suggest, like really fetishize in some way, this idealized version of the people that they're encountering. Um, and as, uh, Nancy Perezo, a scholar has written about that there's irony in the salvage method in going and trying to trade you know, Western materials to preserve these Indian cultures and then ultimately changing the material, uh, you know, uh, realities of these places that people are then using cast iron skillets and, uh, you know, uh, incorporating different types of feathers and materials or shells that they could get through trading. And of course, that's... But their old ways are saved for posterity. Right, right. And so it's based on this faulty idea, right, that cultures are sort of in the static bubble. They're never un- they're yeah. never changing or influenced by... Um, and yet, like I've said, you know, like we have to look on this, I think, on a couple of different levels is that they're contributing to this awful sort of... Um, uh, uh, you know, a global process of colonialism and the stripping of land and materials. They're also writing figures like Helen Hunt Jackson are influential in these stories who are writing some of the first sympathetic treatments of native history that are opening quote unquote liberal sympathetic white audiences eyes to these problems for the first time, like before the 1880s, there weren't very many texts saying like, hey, you know, what happened in California was genocide. That was a disaster on a human scale. Like people in Boston should know about that. So I think it's important to recognize that element of these these individuals as well, along with the many um, uh, problems that they're presenting. Some of these figures were the, the first, you know, Europeans or Americans to say, hey, we need to take this seriously and, and think about these uh, as sort of complete worlds, um, yeah. even though they weren't thinking about them in so truly sophisticated or accurate ways. All right. Well, we're going to take one more break and give Sam a chance to like catch his breath after I grilled him <laughs> for a while. Um, and then we'll come back with some more questions. 
This is Chris Webster at the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We are back, and we've got a few more questions for Samuel Redmond. Um, the final chapter of, of Prophets and Ghosts brings in the voices of indigenous artists and scholars and leaders, which essentially asks the question, now what? So what, what do you see or what do you want to see as the future for all of this mm, data, for all of these, these objects, for all of these remains, for, for everything that was collected, stolen and, and gifted by, by, as a result of salvage anthropology? What, what comes next for all of that? That's a, a monumentally important question because I think it speaks to what is the future of museums? What is the future of collecting and, and trying to preserve heritage and, and material culture? Uh, I, as I suggested earlier, um, you know, I think I've uh, stated this uh, pretty routinely over the course of, of my work that I'm I'm an advocate for thoughtful repatriation that. Uh, there should be collaboration with uh, museums and tribal communities to ensure uh, the thoughtful return of material, uh, reburial in many cases, or return of sacred materials to tribal museums. Um, and I see this not as a threat to museums, as many people did in the early 1990s. I see this as a, as a, a huge opportunity for people to create new connections, to repair some really heavily frayed uh, uh, relationships that, that will never be fully uh, repaired, but we can, we can uh, make some strides towards reconciliation uh, and, and, you know, improving these relationships. Uh, I became also interested in though, what about these materials that will be there uh, even after uh, those conversations take hold, sort of some of these mundane materials or, or other materials that um, maybe can't be repatriated for one reason or another because of circumstances. So, for example, there is uh, a practice in the 19th uh, century of, uh, quote unquote, poisoning materials for preservation purposes. So anything organic, which is like, oh, my gosh, anything, right? Um, you know, uh, wood, feather, bone, um, any of that material that would be doused in arsenic or mercury for permanent preservation. So you, uh, even though uh, some communities would like to reincorporate these materials into their ceremonies, like you can't give like a toxic carcinogen, you know, and be like yeah. perform. In, it's not great. Right. What a so, powerful metaphor. Right. Uh, but, you know, I became interested in the story that um, uh, uh, the Smithsonian and, and tribal communities were coming together to use 3D printing technology um, to create replicas of these materials that, that were uh, 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 removed from their communities uh, a century ago in many cases. Um, and in one story uh, uh, with a, a clinket hat, uh, it the, the century old hat was asked to sit overnight in a room with this 3D printed replica and share its knowledge. Um, uh, and there again, through many of these stories, I began to think differently about uh, material culture and what these things even mm -hmm. mean, what they are, uh, but then how they could potentially be incorporated into art and art practice in a contemporary mm -hmm. world. Let me just mention briefly these amazing artists, Wendy Redstar and Marie Watt, who talked to me about how they think about museums today. 
Um, so it, it became really fascinating. And, and again, something that I think we should introduce new voices into the conversation and, and ask Native people what they think should happen with these materials. Yeah. Um, so I know you've got another book coming out. Um, and, um, and so, with, I, I mean, I don't know when you wrote it compared to this one, but thinking about... Um, so you've mentioned now a couple times of of sort of the the, the lives of objects um, and and so sort of material culture as um, being embodied, not necessarily that there's that like not necessarily in like an animistic way, but in a way that like this has a this has a life, it has a purpose, it has a role, so it has it has some it has a form of like personhood. Um, did did wrestling with that idea and sort of seeing that and, and experiencing that, did that change in any way your view of uh, what a museum is, hmm. what a museum can be, and the the um, the consequences of taking taking material culture from um, communities who either have explicitly explained like how how they view it and, or, and personify or embody these objects um, and putting them in these um, sterile, lonely places where they are and not being given an opportunity to live as they should have, whether they be a living, breathing person or they be um, a, non a non-breathing uh, object <laughs> of material culture. Um, it, did, did that change for you? Is it shifting for you? Um, how How is this project making you think about uh, what museums have been and thinking about those, the photos that you have in the book and the photos that people may, may think of when they think about the old Smithsonian, just like the, these rooms and like these drawers overflowing with just stuff. And it's like, why do you keep taking, why do you keep receiving it? Why do you keep collecting it if you're not, if you can't store? And we we talk about, we lament this all the time. Um, lots of folks that, who listen have worked in museums and know that like there are places where like the worst possible place something could be. You know, thinking about the Hearst Museum, uh, back in Berkeley and thinking about how many of those objects, including like the, the largest collection of, of baskets is under a pool over mm. a fault line. And like thinking about, um, it seems like a safe place to keep your stuff. Yeah. Just like th well, stuff think, that's not I, I remember yours. spending time in there and being like, that like, this is like, this is imperiled. So you have things that are quite literally imperiled. Um, and then you have other things that are sort of more um, perhaps like symbolically or spiritually Im imperiled. And so um, what's, what's going on in your head with regard to museums and, um, and, and what they do and how they work? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, on some level, I'm still a, a big believer in museums. You know, when I go to the American Museum of Natural History or the Met or, you know, when I go back to the Field Museum and I, and I see people, you know, learning about the world and uh, thinking of that, like, you know, one of my colleagues says on, on the, the ranking of all of the many things that I think we need to dismantle in society, I think museums like aren't exactly at the top. You know, I think there are other pro more problematic institutions that we should think about, but um, I think that they need to be reformed in a bunch of major and, and foundational and, and, and important ways. Um, and we need to fully rethink what it is they, they do and what their purpose is and what the purpose of preservation is and what that looks like. And as your question suggests, I don't think preservation should be just taking these materials and us determining or the powers that be people that largely look like me throughout a lot of the story um, to, they shouldn't be able to just unilaterally determine what is best. Um, so we need to fundamentally reform and rethink, you know, and think from a more collaborative and meaningfully collaborative way where these major institutions cede a lot of the power, frankly. Um, but they also have a huge amount of resources and, this prestige in this academic uh, universe and, and, and sort of, um, you know, this prestige driven economy in many respects there, you know, they still have a voice. Uh, so I think it's, if we, they have, there's a huge amount of power there and potential for education, but they do need to be fundamentally reformed and, and rethought. I think there are also, there are a lot of people doing this work. I just want to credit, you know, a lot of that sixth chapter is about people pushing for these changes that have been pushing for these changes since the eighties and nineties um, that, you know, I wasn't the first person thinking about a lot of these problems. Um, but I, what I tried to do was think about 
this historical problem of these, you know, shelves, like you say, in the, the 19th and uh, late 19th and early 20th century that are just becoming filled with this material. What do we do with it now? Um, I think that the, that challenge should force us to reconsider fundamentally what a museum even is today. And frankly, too, what anthropology is, what archaeology is. Uh, and what the benefits of these fields are, but also what the ethical limitations might be. I, you know, I mentioned earlier the sort of how I was trying to think about, um, I was thinking about Gertrude Bell, as I often am, um, and, and sort of thinking about her <laughs> in a different, a different context, a different part of the world with, from a different imperial apparatus. Um, but are there transferable lessons from the salvage anthropology movement and, and legacy in the United States to other corners of the discipline? You you mentioned in the book that you're like, this is not the point of this book, but this is something that that that, that there are shades of it elsewhere elsewhere in other other parts and other parts of the world and other times. Does it speak to settler colonial states? And so thinking about like Australia in particular came to mind for me uh, to colonial enterprises more generally thinking about the European powers that are sort of at work in the African continent and, and sort of pushing research there. Are there transferable lessons to like our present relationship with uh, material cultures or bodies of uh, from cultures where we can't identify descendant communities. So like thinking about not just the, the ones where you have sort of people who are on record at the time saying, this is what this, this is what this is like. This is what this does. This is why we, we don't want you to have it because if it's sitting in the Peabody, it's, it isn't living its life, you know, for Anna's, Anna's work because sort of Thanks. Um, in, in Western Asia or in um, Denisova cave where you've got sort of bodies of Neanderthals and Denisovans and like people who are not homo sapiens, like, are there transferable what do we lessons do with those? here? Like in thinking about how we engage with material culture and remains of people who, who have vanished actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is a, a, again a really important conversation that's been evolving in a bunch of in a bunch of related aspects of our profession. So, for example, uh, the Society for American Archivists debated uh, protocols for indigenous uh, archival material, um, and uh, they came out with a, a statement in in response for how archives should strive to work with. Um, these materials. And another aspect of it that it didn't really occur to me until taking this on was the idea of uh, copyright. So a lot of things are just sort of standard copyright for a century, and then they become freely available through, say, like the Library of Congress or or Mm -hmm. books. Um, And we kind of, I don't know, I, I sort of had this assumption that that material or that knowledge is like neutral. And I come from this Western background that privileges like free speech and open access and free exchange of knowledge and sort of scientific information by and large, I think that's a good thing. Right. But what about sacred knowledge that I'm not supposed to know? You know, what about things of that nature? So I think it should introduce more nuance into this conversation, but again, I don't think, um, I'm certainly in in thinking about the implications of this. I don't think I'm the only person uh, meditating on this, but I, I do think that, thinking about the heavy influence of salvage anthropology, when it happened and how it happened, should make us think that collaboration uh, is so much a better process to outcome than sort of this unilateral determination of what's best for materials. Um, And Mm -hmm. and that includes all different types of materials. I think that's a lesson that we're left uh, left with today. Yeah. And so thinking about collaborating when there's no one to collaborate with, you know, there, there are, as a result of the genocide that happened in, in this continent, there are people who are lost and there are people that don't have, um, that don't have descendant communities, um, that there are not, um, because as you make very clear, both in this conversation and in your work, like this is not like in, like indigenous North America is not a monolith. And, and so there are people, there are, there is such degree of diversity. They'd be like, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I, you know, we have no linguistic ties to tell you what any of this was. Like there are no um, cultural or religious ties. And so what, what happens then? Does it just sort of like, is there the, the, the very cynical, like we get to keep it kind of thing? Or is it sort of like, well, what can we, how do we do right by this? Like as sort of having, um, 
Like, how do you have collaboration in the absence of a collaborator? This is another, there's another line in one of these interviews that I did uh, where uh, artist Wendy Redstar said, through learning about this history and how complicated it is, I've become even more skeptical of broad sweeping answers or simplistic answers. Um, So I don't have broad sweeping answers to this necessarily, but I think two things in response to that. And one of them really relates to the Ishii story, right? So if the Ishii, the, 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 the sort of, the, the way Ishii, of course, is is framed, and I think this has been problematized by some scholars, is like this idea of he's the last of his tribe. So what do you do with when there's no sort of kin in that way? Well, I think the strategy that was uh, taken in in that case that can can often be successful is thinking about who the closest living communities are, who are sort of the the cousins or the the next of kin, you might say, in uh, a, a reasonable way. And then this is problematic in certain sorts of ways. But I think on a fundamental human level, when I worked with human remains um, back before, you know, really getting into this more as a, as a historian than working in repatriation, thinking about fundamentally, how would you want to be treated? How would you want your relatives to be treated? Can there be, you know, and I hesitate to propose some sort of universal ethics right uh, behind any of this, but um, certainly that meant, you know, a, a sort of quiet solitude around the things that deserve that respect and learning from people how they could be ethically, respectfully treated in a way that I would want um, the most sacred things in my life to be treated or to, that I would want my ancestors to be treated. And, you know, the way that I would want that to happen is by, you know, asking or asking someone that knew them or cared about them in, in some meaningful way. So, I think that can be a path forward in in many ways, but um, there again, that's one of the reasons why I'm sort of skeptical in 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 some of these broad sweeping solutions that everything should should be repatriated or returned. You know, maybe there are examples where things have been gifted or given in a in a, a positive way that uh, we can build on. Maybe there are other examples that might require years of dedicated research and and collaboration and consultation to figure out what the right way home and path forward is. On the other hand, those complexities have often been made into excuses for throwing up, you know, uh, reasons for slowing down repatriation or, or processes. So I think there needs to be a balance of investing in that and doing the work, uh, but also understanding that sometimes that does meaningfully take time. Yeah, yeah, and and avoiding a uh, sort of positivist approach. It's like, well, we can't do everything, so why do anything? Right, um, anyway. yeah. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Are you ready for our hardest questions? Hit me. Okay. So these are the two final questions that we ask all of our guests, and we, we really love seeing sort of the, the breadth of answers across all of the guests. So what is the best thing about anthropology? To me, the best thing about anthropology and having any opportunity to study it or be around it are the incredible people that I meet. Of course, you get a chance to debate ideas and uh, sometimes go to different places. Um, but back when I worked in uh, in museum anthropology and uh, would help visiting delegations, I uh, I learned a huge amount in my anthropology classes, no doubt. And from reading anthropology books, I did a lot. I don't mean to say that those were secondary to my education, but there's <laughs> nothing like meeting someone and saying, you know, hearing them say something like, oh, my mom made spoons like these. Here's how they did it. And, you know, I, to me, that's just one of the most remarkable eye-opening experiences that any human can have is to meet people who aren't necessarily like them for one reason or another and to engage in serious listening. Um, So, you know, I love anthropology because it, it makes me work on that listening. It makes me work on, you know, being present and mindful with people and thinking about the context and, um, uh, trying to, to be attuned to those things. Uh, but yeah, I just, I find it endlessly fascinating. There's so many possible answers to that, but I think the people that you meet, that's, that's my favorite part of it. If you could be a fly on the wall for one moment in human history or prehistory or for a moment in the development of anthropology as a discipline, what would you choose and why? (laughs) This is such a tough question, but, um, you know, in thinking about like, gosh, all of human history. Yeah. Yep. Probably. This is why we send the questions in advance. Not (laughs) just this one. No, no. um, Thinking about 
honestly, the first time that someone was brave enough to eat something like an oyster and <laughs> was like, yeah, I'm just going to go for it. Here's a shell full of snot. Yep. Straight yeah. up. <laughs> and man, this ends up being delicious. And half of people hate it, but man, it's great. Um, mm. So yeah, I think there are just moments like that where it's it's a little bit of a mystery how how people sort of went off that ledge and, and figured that out. Um, and I'm always curious about that. Um, of course, in terms of, as a historian of anthropology, there are so many moments uh, in the, the 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 history of anthropology that I would like to go back and see. I mean, touring the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition or intensely problematic uh, archaeology and anthropology displays at the 1904 St. Louis Fair. Yep. It'd be so interesting just to be a fly on the wall or to be able to go back and and see those things. But um, yeah, I wonder who ate that first oyster. (laughs) I wonder the same thing about um, the first person to milk something. An animal, <laughs> like seems like a good plan. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna. I mean, there there is they can. I, I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at a baby animal, you can be like, okay, this. Yeah, but you could I'm also watch the logic, right? But okay, you could also animal, watch this, another this cut, animal no, eat an oyster. This so let's get away from the milking. There's still a, plenty of mysteries uh, to me <laughs> in, in our lengthy human history. No, well, you know what doesn't have to be a mystery. Uh, you on the internet, where can people find you, Samuel J. Redman, and your work? Sure. I, I think I'm a very easy person to find. Uh, I am at Samuel J. Redman on Twitter, and uh, I teach at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And folks can find my first two books, Bone Rooms and Prophets and Ghosts, through Harvard University Press. And uh, thanks for mentioning that I have a forthcoming book called The Museum, A Short History of Crisis and Resilience. And that's coming out on April 5th uh, this year with uh, NYU Press. So folks can check those out. And uh, I'm really grateful for having this uh, fascinating conversation today. Yeah, this is We're so glad you could join us. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, everyone, now that you heard it, (laughs) go... Get yourselves onto uh, Twitter. Get into a bookstore. Well, no, or first, oh, first, hold out a little hope. Um, get thee to our Twitter and Instagram feeds because you oh yeah, yeah have yeah. an opportunity you could win your very get, own. Yeah, so Harvard University Press has graciously, um, thank you, <laughs> uh, given us the opportunity to give away three copies, and and so you've you've got a week if you're listening to us when it drops. Um, So do that. And then, uh, yeah, definitely check out the book. Um, In the show notes, we will include um, other books that have been mentioned and other works so that you can find that stuff if this is a topic that you want to learn more about. And while you're on the internet, go ahead and rate us (laughs) and give us a positive review. You're there already. You're already there Um, on, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, anywhere else that you can find a place to rate us highly mm-hmm. um please five stars if you have fewer than that it's okay to Sorry. have an unexpressed thought like that's <laughs> that's fine um but um that's that's what we've got for you this week yeah and we will be back in your ears next week with new content which you can find in all the usual places you can also find us on our social media on twitter we're at dirt podcast on instagram we are at the dirt pod and on facebook you can just find us at regular old the dirt podcast and don't forget go to at dirt podcast on twitter at the dirt pod on instagram yeah and get win that book yeah yeah um and all of that and more and links to our merch and everything else that we do and all of our other guests oh um, my goodness on our website thedirtpod.com thanks everybody Do, do it we love you goodbye bye This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.